0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Uh, before starting this morning, I just wanted to uh, give a bit of a report um, because through this whole Christmas season, uh, we have been encouraging people to help and um, to give in a way that could help those who are needy among us. And I just wanted to give you a bit of an update. Um, this Christmas, we were able to help 15 families through our adoptive family program. Uh, single moms, parents uh, who are out of work uh, to provide Christmas presents and a Christmas dinner for them. We were also able to collect 405 coats in the coat drive, and we actually collected over a 1,000 pounds of food. Um, so thank you. Good job, church. And it's our hope and dream that we continue this, uh, this spirit of generosity and giving and, and helping and serving in our community uh, as we head into this new year. So, uh, so don't let it stop with Christmas. Um, In our garage, tucked away in a corner under boxes and piles of boxes of clothes and uh, toys that the kids left because they moved out of the house and left them soccer balls and tennis rackets and all that kind of stuff, we have um, a chest. And and this particular chest we have had for a long, long time. Uh, This chest has made its move from um, from San Bruno, California, to Astoria, Oregon, to Ferndale, Washington, and back to the Bay Area once again. Uh, we have had this chest ever since we've been married. In fact, it actually goes back from before we were married. Uh, and it's a chest actually that my father-in-law, uh, Betty's dad, made for her uh, before we even got married. It's a chest to, to uh, hold her treasured objects, um, some of grandma's china uh, some linens, some silverware, a quilt. Anybody know what this chest is called? A hope chest. A hope chest. Yeah, yeah. Now, we dated... It's, it's, it's By the way, a hope chest, for those of you who don't know, a hope chest, because they're not really around ver- very much anymore... Hope chests are what people used to have, you know, young women have, and that's where they would store all the things in hopes of someday getting married, and that would be the beginnings of their new home. That's where it got its name. But I got to tell you, um, I dated my wife for like over five years before I got the nerve to ask her to marry me. So her hope chest actually became more of a hopeless chest. I don't know. Um, It was very close to coming that way. Um, It's not something that's very common anymore, Um, and I'm not too sure why, but I will tell you this that every one of us have one of these. It may not be a physical, tangible chest, but every one of us in the deepest part of our hearts have one of these places where we keep our deepest hopes and longings, our most heartfelt desires. We've all got hopes. We are, as a human race, we are insatiable hopers because it's how God created us. He planted within us This desire for something more. And this whole series that we've been talking through, the Christmas series, and looking at this idea of hope has been all about understanding that no matter what the circumstances of life might bring, there's always still hope because of our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And the whole Christmas story is a lesson in hope. And so today we're going to wrap up that whole series and we're going to finish up talking about hope. And what I really want to talk about this morning is why hope is so important. What is it about hope that changes us? What does it do for us to have this kind of hope? And if you want to turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians, um, Colossians is actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city called Colossae, hence the name. And um, we're going to pick up, it's the very beginning of this letter, and, and he, is, he is writing letters of, of, of commendation and expressions of joy and thanks for these people that have, have, have given their lives to Christ, and, and it's changed them. Um, they're, they're, they're giving more, they're, they're sharing more, they're, they're doing life together, they're growing in faith, all of these things are happening. And so he writes these, this letter to these people, and in verse 3, we'll pick it up, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up when you, for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason... who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves and in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. To present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Verse twenty five, I have become a servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness. And the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He writes this letter to people who have new, found this newfound faith in Christ and has begun to transform their lives and, and develop this whole new community and, and, and such incredible things are happening and he hears word of it and he writes this letter back and he says, I have heard about all these great things that are happening and my prayer is that they continue to happen. But throughout this letter there keeps coming up this one word, hope. That all these things spring from hope. All these things come about because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says it's all, it all predicates around this idea of hope. And that's why we continue to pray for you, that you would continue to grow in this hope because there is something about hope that just changes our lives. And so as we look through this uh, little passage this morning, what I want to talk about is how does hope change us? What is it that hope does that changes everything about our lives? And one of the things that hope does is it gives us a foundation for our lives. Hope provides us a foundation. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. That God in his creation has stamped on each and every one of us this desire for something more. The writer the writer of Ecclesiastes writes it this way. He says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women. That there is this desire in the way that God has created us that draws us to a better life that God intended for us to live. And we're restless about it. There is something that keeps us pushing forward, looking for this life that God has for us. We have this sense that there ought to be something more than what it is that we're experiencing. And that's the seeds of hope. Paul writes about it this way. He says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, here it is again. We talked about this the first week, this triad that you find over and over in Scripture. Faith, hope, and love. And how they're connected, he goes on like this. the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up in you. In other words, what he's saying is that faith and love, they grow out of hope. In fact, there's a very, very important word that's used here in the Greek. It's a very little word. It's a a particle, um, which if you know your parts of speech, um, it's just, it's something that makes the connection. And the the word in Greek is dia, D-I-A, English transliteration. What it means is because of or through or by means of. And the way that he's saying it here is that this faith and this love that's at work in your life has come by means of hope. That it grows from the seeds of hope, if I can mix metaphors this morning. That what he's saying is that people of faith and people that love must also be people of hope. Because hope provides that kind of foundation. The writer to the Hebrews put it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. That it all begins with hope. It begins with this desire for the good things that God has for us. It's how He created us. And it starts with this discontent for the way things are. There is this kind of a holy discontent inside of us that pushes us for something more, for deeper relationships, for for greater understanding, for a richer faith. It is a thing that moves us forward. It's a thing that keeps us moving forward in the same way that that a fish has to keep moving for it to be able to breathe through its gills for the water to pass through. That is how essential hope is for us. That it's a thing that keeps us moving forward forward and it's this kind of godly holy sacred discontent that we desire something more lewis smeeds writes about it this way he says how can we be content with our world the way that it is how can we be content with ourselves the way that we are the satisfied soul is a soul that has settled too soon for what is the soul alive with hope is a soul that feels a white water undercurrent of wishes for better things. We must be discontent until we find our contentment eventually in the fuller, better life that only God can give. It is a a spiritual force within us. It is a God-given force within us that drives us for something More, and that's why when we lose hope it can be so devastated it puts us so squarely in this holding pattern because there's no desire to move forward this holy discontent this thing that gets us to the point we say I'm not happy with the way things are I want it to be different I want my life to be different I want my world to be different I want my relationships to be different when I was a kid um, and it might still be around today. I don't know because I don't watch cartoons all that much anymore. But when I was a kid, there was this cartoon. Um, this this guy is called Popeye the Sailor Man. I don't is he still around today? Okay, for those of you old timers, okay, you might remember this guy. Popeye had this girlfriend, which I have no idea what he saw in her. You know, her name was Olive Oil, and I don't for some reason he just he just saw beauty in this stick figure. I don't know. Um, but there was something that always happened in every Popeye cartoon. Somehow Olive Oil would get into trouble. Brutus was chasing her or something. She would get herself into some kind of danger. And Popeye would see what was happening. And we'd always have this saying. I don't know if you remember it. Do you remember what he used to say? That's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. You Remember that? It's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. Which is really bad grammar, but he was a sailor after all. So what do you expect? (laughs) It was something that got him to the point where he says, I can't take it anymore. I don't like what's happening. I've got to do something about it. And there's something inside of us that maybe we don't let on to very often, but there's something inside of us that is this holy discontent. And sometimes it gets to the point where we, we get so worked up over that we say things like, I can't stand it this way anymore. And sometimes it's not quite so obvious, but it's the thing that does, makes us desire something more. Tom Agum, who has visited with us pretty much every Thanksgiving since we've been in existence as a church, um, is the president of Hope for Kids International. A number of people in our church family had been on short term mission trips with us. But I remember when he came about six years ago before they had started working in Uganda. And he had come back from his first visit to the nation of Uganda and had seen the desperation there, particularly in children whose parents had died of AIDS. And these were these orphan kids, uh, some of them infected with the HIV virus themselves. And just saw the desperation and the lack of hope. And he talked about the time where, in fact, it's actually the title of his newest book. Where he kept the point, he says, Lord, why don't you hear their cries? Lord, why aren't you hearing their prayers? He says, it was like God himself was speaking to him and saying, you are the answer to their prayers. You are the one who's supposed to do something. And he talks about being overwhelmed with that. You know, I can't save everybody, but you can start somewhere. And those are the seeds of hope. See, sometimes everything seems so overwhelming to us. I don't even know where to start. You can start somewhere. When you see injustice, when you see a hurt, when you see some, when you experience even in your own life something that you know is not right. That holy discontent that God's spirit fires up within you is the thing that motivates you to make the change. About 20 years ago or so, God started burning one of those kinds of things in my own heart. And I started dreaming about and thinking about what it would be like to have and to found and to plant a church where people who had no church background could come and feel welcome, and accepted, and could, could hear music that they were used to, the kind of tunes that, that they listened to on the radio, and could hear teaching in a way that they could understand it, and apply it to their lives, and this thing started burn in my own heart, and it wasn't that I wasn't, I had been, I had been in good churches all of my life, I, I had grown up in a really good church, in fact, I was on the pastoral staff now, of this church, and it was a wonderful church, there was nothing really wrong with that church, except that I knew that it was not the kind of church I would invite my friends to, Because the songs that we sang, they wouldn't know those words. And the language that was used, they wouldn't understand that language. And it began to burn in my heart. What if there could be a church that was different? And there were a few churches way, way back then, 20 years ago or so, that were doing those kinds of things. And it became one of those things on my own heart that I wanted to do something different. And I believe it was a God-born vision in my own life. See, when God gets your attention with one of those kinds of things, he plants these seeds of hope, this desire for things to be different than they are. And it's that that you can build your whole life on. So let me ask you this morning, what are your hopes and dreams? Do you have any? Is there any any godly, holy, sacred discontent in your life? Is there anything that you look at and you say, it shouldn't be this way? Is there any motivation, is there any passion in your life that springs from this idea that I want things to be different? As you look at this new year, what are your hopes and dreams? Or do you even have any? Have you given up on hope and just said, well, this is the way it's going to be, and it's never going to be any different. So I'll just go through another year like the last year. See, I believe God has something more for your life and for mine. And it starts with hope. And that's why when hope dies, it is so devastating. So let me ask you this morning: If I had you do this, if I had you on that piece of paper on your sermon, if you could just write down the one wish, the one hope, the one dream that you have for 2010, what would it be? Would you take a minute now, or maybe this afternoon, think about that? What is the one? Not a New Year's resolution, but just what is the one hope that you would want to see in this coming year? Because it's got to start with a hope got to start with that kind of a dream now because these things are so important and and so foundational it is vital that we choose to put our hope in the right things because there's all kinds of things out there in this world that promise hope that don't deliver and we start at a very very young age with those kinds of things the things that we look to that are going to bring fulfillment to our lives as a kid maybe it's things like maybe if i can get really really good grades in school or maybe if I could just be the star athlete on the team. Or, or maybe if I can just get into the right university. The one that I really want to be in. And maybe we graduate and we get a little bit older. And, and those dreams and those hopes become, maybe if I'm rich. Uh, maybe if I raise rise to the top of my profession. Maybe if I can reach a certain financial income. Uh, you know, maybe if I can get to that place. Or, or, or if I could just find the right man or just the right woman. Or or maybe just one more facelift will bring me that beauty that I've lost, you know. All of these things that we look for, and one of two things happen. Either we never attain the hopes that we had, and so we live life discouraged or bitter, resentful, or even worse, we attain them, and we realize they're not as fulfilling as we thought they were going to be And that's why Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor, pastoring the church, in in these instructions for his church. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That is just one area, but there are so many uncertain hopes that we place and we pin our dreams on. And when we do, we end up disappointed. He says, put your hopes in the right thing. Put their hope in God. It is only in the gospel that we find that foundation for hope. And that's why Paul wrote to the Colossian church all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. He's saying, you are the evidence of this. Your lives are, are the proof that this, this hope that we have in Christ, this hope in the gospel is a worthwhile foundation because look at the difference it's made in your lives. Look at the way that you are are growing in your relationships. Look at the faith. Look at the change in your own lives. He says that is the hope. That is the promise you know you can put your faith into. And wise, hopeful people know which hopes matter the most. And that's what Paul is saying here. There are some things that you can put your hope in and they will be deceptive. They will be false hopes. But there are some things you know you can put your hope in. And hopeful people, wise people, know which hopes matter most. And when they do that, hope does something else. It produces a strength to endure. Because one of the difficulties with hope is clinging on to hope in the face of discouragement. Holding on to hope when those other hopes start to fall apart. It's the strength to endure, to persevere. It's the belief that God is working... Even when I can't see him. And every one of us go through those kind of stages in our lives. So Paul goes on. And he says, we pray for you. We pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power. So that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. Because Paul knows from his own experience. Sometimes you don't see God's work. Sometimes you don't recognize that God's hand is working. Sometimes it's not evident. It's not apparent. And sometimes you just have to hang on to the hope regardless of the circumstances. And Paul knew that. He's writing this letter from prison. From where he is at, it seems like everything has gone wrong for him. And he knows that would probably be their experience as well. So he says, This is my prayer. That he'll strengthen you. That this hope will produce this endurance and this patience. All the endurance and patience that you need. Because there is a lot of frustration and a lot of heartache and a lot of disappointment in this life. There is. There's no way around it. Romans 8 talks about it this way. It says that all of creation is subject to frustration. All of creation suffers these pains. And it says they are the pains of childbirth. Because something new is coming about, and all creation suffers these pains. That it's not just what you experience yourself, all of creation experiences this frustration, this discouragement, this despair, because we go through these times of pain. But he says, These are the pains of childbirth. God is bringing something new. They are pain, yes, they're real, but they are the pains of childbirth. They are labor pains. Now, how intense are labor pains? I have no idea. But from my observations, they're hard. (laughs) They can be quite difficult. And Paul is saying, sometimes that's what life is like. It's painful. And we're not spared those heartaches as believers. But he says, what he's doing is God is birthing something new. So even though it's painful, don't give up hope. See, all too often the way that people tried to deal with pain and heartache and fear and discouragement and anxiety, all of those things that come with hope, because they do. One of the ways that they deal with it is they just give up hope. If you give up hope, there's no danger of being hurt. And they surrender to fate. Whatever will be, will be. Whatever happens, that's just what's going to happen. And they become almost fatalistic about it. And they lose all hope for their lives. But it's much easier to give up on hope than to be hurt sometimes. They did a study back in World War II of of airmen, uh, men who were flying bombing raids over Germany. And they found that that there's such a fear of of not coming back from any mission. Um, And they they did a study, how do these guys deal with this? How How do people in the military, how do they deal with this fear of the thought that they may not return from the mission? And what they found is the way that they dealt with it, the only way they could deal with it was to put hope aside. To just become fatalistic. To not believe that they would ever come back. To just think, well, if I die, I die, and that's just the way it is. To just give up hope, to just take this whole fatalistic approach to it. Because it was easier than living with the fear that you may not come back. Or with the desire to want to come back. But here's the thing that they found. They couldn't keep hope aside forever. Because as it got close to a time of furlough or, or, or close to the time of their tour of duty, they found that as the closer it got to the time that they were going to be able to go home, the harder and harder it was to keep hope dead. <laughs> because now there was a reason for living. Now there was something they were looking forward to. But of course, with that, also came the fear once again. Because hope and fear are like twin cousins. You can't have hope Without fear. The good news is, you can face fear with hope. And that's what Paul is trying to get at here. He says there is a different way of thinking. You don't have to give up hope to be able to survive in this hurting world. In fact, he says, the very things that produce this pain and this heartache in your life are the very things that can also produce hope. Look at what he wrote to the Roman church, Romans 5. Romans 5. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character produces hope. And he says, hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That there is a new way of looking at the difficulties of life. There's a new way of looking at discouragement and frustration. And it really comes down to how do you interpret the failures and the setbacks and the discouragements of life. Because everybody has them. So the real key is how do you interpret them? See, people who lose hope, people who give up easily, there are three characteristics that tend to be a part of their thinking. The one key is that they tend to think this is permanent. Whatever situation, whatever circumstance they might be going through, there is this feeling like it's never going to change. I shared with you last week some of the darkest moments of my own life um, about six years ago when I just hit this emotional wall and it just it wiped me out. And I was just totally exhausted. And, and, and it was the first time in my life that I've, I, I've, I experienced clinical depression. And those of you who suffer from that, you know what this is like, okay? For those of you who don't, it is this overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. And I remember, and it was the scariest thing to me, was this feeling like it's never going to change. I'm never going to feel any different ever again. And that sense of despair that comes over you, when you feel like it's, it, this is it. This is going to be my life for as long as I live. It is never going to change and one of the things that kills hope is this thinking that it's permanent that this is never going to change whatever it is you might be going through right now and you might be going through some serious stuff and i know there are people in our church family who are and one of the thoughts that you come through your mind is is it ever going to change and the minute you start thinking it never will is when hope starts to die but it's not only that it's not only the feeling that it's permanent, there's also the sense that it's pervasive. That this thing, whatever it is that's going on, this circumstance, this situation, is going to affect every area of my life. It's not just one thing, it's my whole life. And it's not only permanent, it's pervasive. It's every aspect of my living. And the third part of it is that you start to take it personal that it's me. It's my fault. It's my inadequacies. It's my failures. It's my mistakes. And when you get stuck in that pit, and that's the only way I can describe it, this deep black hole, it sucks every ounce of hope out of you. And you really begin to believe it's never going to change. This is my life and it's going to affect every area of my life and it's all my own fault so I can't possibly think it's ever going to change. And that cyclical thinking destroys hope. Paul says there's a different way of thinking. That the very circumstances that might sap all of the hope out of you are also the very circumstances in which you can truly begin to experience hope if you can learn to hang on. And what you hang on to, he says, what you hang on to is the love of God poured into your heart. That is the thing that you can hold on to. That is the fallback hope. That God's love will not let me go. And that becomes pivotal. Because the reality is, the circumstances may not change. But that doesn't mean there is no room for hope. Because our hope depends not on ourselves, but on the love of Christ. And that's why he puts it this way. Christ is in you. He is your hope of glory. Hope gives you that strength to endure. And there's one more thing. And this is really, really important. Because hope does one more thing it reminds us that not everything, not all, is going to be fulfilled in this life. That this life is not all that there is. See, one of the things that hope does is it gives us the bigger picture. It gives us this eternal perspective. He says, continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. What is the hope of the gospel? The hope of the gospel is that life is eternal, that this life is not all that there is, that there is something more, which also means that there is eternal value and there is eternal meaning and there is eternal purposes in the experiences that I go through in this life that whatever I go through not only affects me in this life, it also brings about something of eternal value and worth within me. He wrote to the Corinthians, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. He says if it's only to just get through this life, he says, then, 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 then we put our hopes on something that's not worth hoping for. But he says it's more than that. There is no pain There is no frustration, there is no disappointment, there is no discouragement that you face in your life that Christ has not already faced for you. That was the whole point of Christ coming to this earth. That was the whole point of God becoming man. That he took on himself our brokenness, that he lived the life that we live. That he went through the frustrations and the difficulties and the pains and the sorrows and the abandonment that we all experience once in a while in our lives. But the point of His coming was not just the manger. It was also the cross. Because on the cross, He took all of that pain on Himself completely. And it's not just the manger and the cross. There's also a third element. It's the empty tomb. And the empty tomb says that Christ has provided us a life that supersedes this one. That there is an eternity. There is a resurrection hope no matter what you might be going through. That Jesus is eternal. And because Jesus is eternal, that means all of my problems are just temporary. They might last a while, but they're temporary. This will not go on forever. And Jesus has this resurrection power that He now infuses in my life, which means my problems are limited. They're not pervasive. They're limited. Therefore, this moment, at this point, But they don't have to be the truth about me. And that's the last thing that Christ is now in me, which means that whatever problems I have, they are not personal because the truth about me has not fully been rendered yet. That Christ is in me. 1 John 3 puts it this way Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when He appears, We shall be like him. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. When all other hopes fail, when all other dreams die, this is our bedrock hope. It is the one thing that we can hold on to, even in the midst of heartache, even in the midst of pain, in the midst of discouragement and disappointment. That is the thing that we can hold on to. Lewis Meads, in his book, Keeping Hope Alive, writes it this way, and I just love the way that he's put it. God has promised. It is the believer's reason and only reason to keep waiting for a new and better world. There is one sign in particular that after all the years since it was set on a hill outside a city wall, it still signals God's good intentions to keep his promise. It is the cross to which they nailed Jesus of Nazareth. The cross signals to the Christian believer that the maker of the universe chose to die in a manner as incomprehensible as it was horrible. In order to save the world from its own self-destruction, he must at least have good intentions of keeping his promise to fix the world. But good intentions are one thing. Competence is another. Do we have reason for believing that he is up to the challenge? After two millennia, there is one sign that keeps telling us that God has what it takes to make good on his promise has what it takes to overcome the worst of the world's disasters. It is that baffling but wondrous thing that happened one early morning as the fingers of the day's early light were filtering through the flora of a burial garden in Jerusalem. The thing that happened when life-birthing energy of the universe's maker began to pulse inside the dead biological remains of the very Jesus whom God had apparently abandoned two days before. The cells regenerated themselves, and He, body and soul, came back to life. And as long as there is an Easter, we will have one good reason to keep on hoping. While we also keep on groaning and keep on fearing and keep on doubting, that God will come back and make the whole world good for all his children. Life is going to win. Peace is going to win. Love is going to win. Justice is going to win. God is going to win. Creation story is going to have a happy ending. The way Jesus shall be the way of God's new world. Paul put it this way. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Would you bow your heads with me?